0: Thank you for praying with me and for me. We'll now turn to God's word. We're going to be, as you may have noticed by now, taking a little break from our series in First Thessalonians. We've been in First Thessalonians for five weeks or so. And this morning we'll be taking a little break from that study. And, and this coming Sunday as well, uh, Matt Schmidt will be with us next Sunday to share a word. Um, but This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. I invite you to turn there. It'll be up on the screen or in your bulletin and Jamin Tuller is going to come forward and read for us. It's going to be Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28. Hear the word of God. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Josh. <clears throat> Good morning.
1: Genesis 1, through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let him let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, Multiply, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will
0: stand Thank you, Jamin. All right, let's pray as we come to God's word again. <clears throat> lord it is a weighty thing to open your word we're thankful that it is simple enough for a child to grasp the basic message the good news of of the scriptures of the gospel Uh, but lord deep enough to satisfy the greatest minds and to keep them digging and and digging and to never exhaust the riches of your word and here i am to stand in the middle and to try and make sense of this word to both children and adults alike. God, give me grace to speak in a way that honors you and that helps people understand what you have to say. Let me speak rightly and powerfully. Holy Spirit, come now. Take these words and apply them to the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, uh, we're going to take a little break from First Thessalonians, and this morning we're going to be thinking thinking about creation. And part of the motive behind the timing of this sermon is because of our upcoming symposium. So just to be completely transparent with you, I want to get us thinking about those things. I know I've been announcing it for a long time and sound like a broken record, probably, uh, I want to make sure all of you know about the event and kind of the spirit behind the event. And you can turn the back page there and you can read just an example of one of our breakout sessions. We're going to have five breakout sessions, each one put on by um, theologically committed Christian people who love the Lord and who are working to steward the earth in various ways that bring honor and praise to God. Some are farmers, uh, some are uh, I'm trying to think, we've got uh, uh, some entrepreneurs who started their own businesses with, you know, in the renewable energy fields and some other uh, interesting, we've got a beekeeper and some others that will be coming. So anyway, I invite you to come. I hope you will come. This is an event that I'm, not me, I'm not putting this on. Our church is putting this on. So please come, register and come. So my heart this morning is to get us thinking about some of these things. And I want you to see, I hope you will see, that you don't have to leave your theological commitments to the Bible at the door to appreciate this topic. I think there's a general impression, especially amongst evangelicals like us, uh, who think that to somehow steward the earth or to talk about these things is to compromise somehow on our faith commitments. I'm going to show you today that is not at all the case, or I hope I'm going to try and show you uh, this morning that that is not at all the case. So I've titled today's sermon, I believe I left it the same, I can't remember if I changed it in the bulletin or not, The Meaning of Dominion in Genesis 1. It sounds pretty interesting, huh? (laughs) Some of you are like, oh, what is this about? The Meaning of Dominion in Genesis 1. And you'll understand why I've titled it that as we go through. Well, how many of you, just a show of hands here, how many of you, no shame if you haven't, are familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. Maybe many of you have heard of this story. Okay, many of you have. Maybe, looks like maybe two-thirds or so have heard of this story. The story of the fiery furnace. This is the story of when these three men refused to worship this image that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had, had made of gold. He made this huge image of gold of himself. And whenever the horn was blown Everyone in the entire region was required to stop immediately whatever they were doing and bow down and worship this golden image. And these three men said, no, we will not bow down to that image. The idea was that the image represented the king. So in worshiping the image, the idol, the people were honoring the king. In the ancient world, this was not an uncommon practice. Rulers would set up images of themselves around their territory as a way of saying, this is mine, this is my territory. This was a common practice. It's worth noting that the same word used of Nebuchadnezzar's image in Daniel 3 is the same Hebrew root word used here in our passage before us to describe the creation of human beings. We are God's image are made in God's image. The idea is that we are his representatives on earth. And that the way we are. The way we're made. What we do and so on. Reflects something of the way God is. If you look at verse 26 in our text today. The first portion there that says. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. The words after our likeness are explaining that first part, let us make man in our image. Mankind is to be a representative of God on the earth. We are to be his images or representations that remind all of creation that God is the ruler of this domain, that this is his world. This is one of the reasons why God commanded the first people to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill all the earth. Because all of the earth is the Lord's and God desires his images, his representatives to fill it all. In verse 27, we see that God creates man and woman, both in his image. And there's that word again. We are made in God's image. But what are we to do? Okay, So we're made in his image and After his likeness, what are we to do? What is the job description, so to speak? We're put here for a purpose. What is it? Unlike Nebuchadnezzar's great golden image, we're filled with God's breath. We're animate. We can move and talk and do things. We're living images with wills and desires. What are we to be doing with all of that? Well the next verse gives us that detail verse 28 take a look at verse 28 with me if you've got your bible open and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth this verse describes what many people have called the cultural mandate Or sometimes the creation mandate. It's our job description, right? It's what we're to be about and be doing as human beings. All of us were created with a desire to act and to do that is God given. We're not created to to merely be. We're created to be doers, workers, right? Many of us think of work as a curse, right? You've had those days. Right? We've all had those days, right? Man, this can't be good. Lord, what am I doing? Think of work as a curse or a problem. But according to the Genesis story, work was given to us before the fall. It was given to us before the fall of man and woman. Work, in other words, is good. Some of y'all are studying heaven, what heaven's going to be like, what it's going to be like in that day. Well, I was going to say I hate to break it to you, but that doesn't sound quite right because, again, it makes it sound like work is bad. But we're going to be working. We're going to have things to do, okay? So we're going to be working for the rest of eternity. Get used to it. (laughs) This passage before us today is going to give us the broad strokes, the big picture of what we are to be doing in the here and now. This is an important question and a very practical one. This is not... Something merely for the academics, right? These sort of of things. This is for you and for me. This is immensely practical. Let me give you an example. Many of you know that I played college baseball. Felicia, did you get that image, by the way? Okay, perfect. I never double-checked. so great. Things just work out. Praise God. (laughs) There's me uh, and my little sister there. And uh, after a game one night in Charlotte, I went to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and we were all from Charlotte, so they could come for many of my home games, which was really wonderful. And so this was me after uh, pitching one game. That's why I've got the big ice pack on my elbow there. But when I wore that uniform, I was representing something. I was representing my school, right? I wasn't just representing me or Even just my team, I was representing the university, and you might even say the city, because we were University of North Carolina at Charlotte. So we were saying something, representing our school and our city. When we would travel on an airplane as a team, our coach insisted that we wear decent clothes. He insisted. There was a whole protocol to what we had to wear, slacks and a decent uh, button-up shirt with a collar. He wanted us to look sharp because we were representing others not just ourselves right but our school and the city and as people made in the image of god we represent our maker and that has profound implications on how we should live and what we should be doing in other words it's not about us our life our identity our purpose is all bound up with our maker our creator that's what I want to pause to think about with you this morning. This creation mandate, these things we were given to be doing. Let's think about this a little bit together this morning. Thank you, Felicia. In this verse, God gives us five imperatives. An imperative is a command, it's words that are um, phrased as commands. There's five in verse uh, 28. Be fruitful multiply, fill, subdue, and rule, or have dominion. Those are five imperatives or commands that we are given in verse 28. You could say that these are our marching orders as image bearers of God. But today, these words are a source of great controversy, great controversy, some, just to give you one example, and we could, we could give others, but some, like a gentleman professor named Lynn White Jr., who was the professor of history at UCLA, delivered a lecture in 1966 titled, quote, The Historical Roots of Our Ecologic Crisis. In that lecture, Professor White delivers a critique of Christianity as a whole in which he basically blames this passage in Genesis for all the destruction of the earth we see around us he says this quote science and technology hitherto quite separate activities joined to give mankind powers which to judge by many of the ecologic effects are out of control if so Christianity bears a huge burden of guilt he goes on to describe more and more about why he thinks That is the case. In this article, he reasons that modern science grew out of Christianity. And he's right about that. We wouldn't have science if it weren't for Christian faith. And technology grew out of modern science. And our modern technology has led to a tremendous destruction of the world. So if you trace the roots back, he says, Christianity is the problem. Or at least one of the problems. His arguments based on a particular kind of interpretation of this passage, this passage, something called a, quote, instrumentalist, instrumentalist view of creation. And this view argues that the natural world exists solely to meet human needs. Right. So God gave us dominion. We use it how we want for what we need and what we want. That's the basic interpretation. God's given us us permission, so to speak, to do what we will with creation. But is that correct? Is that right? Is that what this passage teaches us? Without a doubt, Christians have contributed to the mess all around us. I don't know if you knew this or not, but um, some estimate, just to give one example of some of the, the destruction of the planet, some estimate that There's um, an amount of trash in the Pacific Ocean, mainly of like fishing, discarded fishing nets and materials and lots of plastic that um, if you were to put it all together would be twice the size of France in the Pacific Ocean. Um, And if you were to amass it together, they say it'd be several times larger than Texas, big, big, big mass. You can't catch a fish today that doesn't have plastic in its body the microplastics teeny tiny they're consuming it and it becomes a part of their body so the, the earth is is a mess right we've we've made we've made a mess there's no doubt there and christians have been a part of that right we've been a part of that i'm not going to go all into the details but just to give a couple of examples many who profess the name of jesus have not taken good care of god's creation and that includes me i'm not preaching at you Together, all of us have some responsibility in this, right? Too many Christians have been sucked into a worldly mindset when it comes to our possessions and our lifestyle. There are many reasons for this, but one of them, I think, is simply this. We don't want to talk about it, right? Because I think many of us who are committed Christians, evangelicals who believe the Bible, really uncomfortable with this topic. We feel like we're making some kind of compromise to even bring it up. But I don't think that we have to compromise, okay? I don't think that, I think that's a false dichotomy. And I hope that'll become clear as we go along. We struggle with this topic because we don't see what it has to do with salvation, right? We don't see what it matters. We have this idea in our head that the only thing that matters is the gospel, and certainly the gospel is central and as i said last week if we lose that message and fail to preach that message we are not the church we cease to be the church however the gospel has implications on how we live on what we do once we've received jesus what we do once we've believed on how we how we live the bible speaks over and over again about something called holiness holiness Repeatedly, God commands us to be holy as he is holy. Just a few samples. Leviticus nineteen two, Leviticus 20, verse 7. Leviticus 20, verse 26. Leviticus 21, verse 8. Exodus 19, verse 6. 1 Peter 1, verse 16. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. All of these contain that phrase that says, Be holy as I am holy holy holiness is the fruit of salvation it's what comes after we are saved so many of our churches are weak and failing because we focus so intensely on getting people saved and not enough on holiness what to do once you're saved you're entering into this whole process of being formed and molded and shaped into the likeness of our maker to be holy holy one example of this pattern in the scriptures is right in first Peter chapter one. If you want to flip there, I'm going to read a little section just to show you how this pattern plays out. Starting at verse 13, first Peter one, verse 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you, excuse me, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter is writing to believers, and he says, you've been called, right? You've been called out of the world. You're, you're now children of God by faith in Christ. Therefore, since you've been saved, since you are in the family of God and called by God into that family, be holy. Love what God loves. Do what God does. Be like Him. You see that pattern there in that passage. And this is repeated over and over and over all throughout the Scriptures. Holiness is what is produced by our believing the Gospel. Okay, and one aspect of this holiness is is how we care for the material world around us, Okay, how we grow our food, okay? how much we consume. These are all things that have to do with, with holiness. Let me give you one example of how this played out in the ancient world. Okay? Often, when a nation wanted to conquer another nation, they would come in and cut down fruit trees and cripple the nation's resources for decades to come. Right? This was... Commonplace in the ancient world, in the time the scriptures are being being written, scholars say that this was a tactic of the Assyrian Empire, especially. There are many inscriptions and in palaces of the Assyrian kings that show this practice, just carvings and reliefs on walls that show this. I want to have Felicia pull up one relief that will show you. Um, it's depicting a Neo Assyrian king and his troops chopping down date trees okay so you can see them with their axes and they're chopping down these trees these are date trees there and then lugging them off and doing whatever it is they did with them maybe they were building siege works or burning making fires or or whatever so they go in and chop down the trees this wasn't though this wasn't forestry we've we can uh, appreciate what, what foresters do and loggers. It's important work. I'm not condemning that. Okay, don't misread what I'm saying here. But these things would have been happening, again, during the time that Israel was coming into the Promised Land. Okay, they would. These, what they were doing here is they would lay siege to a nation. If they resisted, so like Assyria, if they wanted to conquer a people and the people were resisting them and saying, no, we're not going to follow you, no, we're not going to listen to you, and they were resisting they would come in and around that city, they would chop down that whole city's means of survival, right? And say, okay, we'll play the long game. We'll surround you and now you got no food. Now you got no way to provide for your kids and your, and your people. That's what this is, okay? So it's a, very, it's a long game of destroying the food supply of a people they wanted to conquer. And these things would have been happening during the time Israel was coming into the promised land and dwelling in the promised land. And it would have been very easy For them to employ the tactics to use the same strategies that other nations employed at that time. To intimidate them and to destroy their means of survival for years to come. But what do we find in the book of Deuteronomy? Let's turn to Deuteronomy if you've got your Bible there. Chapter 20. I want to show you something that's really interesting as we keep thinking about these things. Chapter 20 starting at verse 19. When you besiege a city, because Israel was commanded, right, to go into the promised land, they were commanded by God to go in and take this land that he had protected for them and kept for them. And I know that's a controversy too, but I'm not going to get all into that one right now. Okay. We've got enough controversy to do with this morning. Okay. So we'll just set that one aside for the moment. God calls them into the promised land and he says, when you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees, by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them. But you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human. That they should be besieged by you. Only the trees that you know. Are not trees for food. You may destroy and cut down. That you may build siege works. Against the city. That makes war with you. Until it falls. Is that not fascinating? It's an interesting little command given to to the people there in Deuteronomy 20 what's going on here to quote one author that's written a lot on this texts like these are aimed at the preservation of the means of life in other words sustainability sustainability in other words the people of God were to live in such a way that was mindful of the generations to come not just exploiting everything for them in that moment You live in in view of what is future and what is coming. Don't destroy the land. Cultivate it. Steward it so that future generations may thrive. This is an important aspect of God's call to the people of God to be holy as I am holy. He said, yeah, I know they're doing it. I know the Assyrians are doing it and other people. You're not like them. is what God is saying. You tracking with me here? The people were not to be like the other nations who raped and pillaged the land for whatever reason. What I'm getting at here is this. If God's word is consistent, which we believe it is, okay, that's that's we're just taking that for granted here as a as a people. God's word is consistent, it has a single message, start to finish, and it and it harmonizes, and it it's a beautiful tapestry woven together that's consistent, it's watertight, right? There's mystery and there's some places where there's certainly tension, but it's consistent. If it's reliable and trustworthy and has a consistent vision for how we are to live, then the original command back in Genesis cannot mean what Lynn White and others say it means. That the creation is merely something to be used by humanity for our own purposes. It's wrong. Deuteronomy contradicts that that interpretation, right? It says No. Those five imperatives in Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, rule, do not mean we're to live in such a way that ruins the earth for the future generations. you tracking with me? Nod your head if you're hearing me, okay? Sometimes you guys are pretty stoic out there. I can't tell what's going on. It's all right, all right? So I need you to give me some feedback here. Thumbs up, boo, whatever. Okay, Boo every now and then would actually help a little bit. All right, they're not tracking with me. <laughs> i'm hoping for fewer booze though right so not, uh, those are those are not easy to take what do these commands mean what is their goal well let's turn to psalm 104 i'm going to try and wrap it up here i'm not going to go on and go on and on and on with this with this stuff but i just want to give you a kind of a big picture about what the scripture says about some of this stuff turn to psalm 104 for a moment And we'll get some clues about all this. Psalm 104 is not super long, but long enough to where it's like, okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing here. But I just want to read a few sections to give you a sense of something. Okay? And I'm not going to tell you what, just to give you a sense of it. And then we'll reflect on it after. Okay, we'll start right at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of His chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes His messengers winds, His ministers a flaming fire. And He goes on to talk about creation. Go down to verse 10 now. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted in them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goat and the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Go down to verse 24 now. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they're dismayed. It goes on down. Let's go to now verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. And it goes on. But what sense do you have after reading that psalm? we could read the gaps too and you would get the same same sense for me what i walk away is this with is this all of this exists for god for god's honor and praise it's all existing for him and for his praise he is delighting in it he is rejoicing in it in the works of his hands so what that mean what does that mean for us we're not at the center right we're not at the center Right, It's not about us, what God is doing. Even in Genesis 1, what we find is God saying over his creation, it's good, all of it, it's good. And it's good not merely because it satisfies some human needs or the needs of animals or other life. It is good because God delights in it. He loves it. He made it. He rejoices in it. All of this exists for God's good pleasure. This is a grand theater, and the central character in the play that is showing every day in this theater is the Lord God Almighty. This is his show. Colossians 1:16 affirms this interpretation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. For him. All things were created by him and for him. We're not the center. We don't just get to do whatever we want with this place. Our lives should be lived as though we were not at the center of all things. Not only in the way we care for other people, but also in the way we shop what we eat or what we don't eat, how we consume. Let us be wise stewards. Okay? There's a steep learning curve for us Americans, I think, who are so very used to being consumers. But God will help us. God will help us. We turn to him. The last thing I want to say about this is this. If there ever was a person who lived this out, it was Jesus Christ. Jesus, his entire life was a life lived for others. It was a life of sacrifice. Even though he was God in the flesh and could have made it all about him all the time. He said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He lived for others. He lived for God and for others. That's a model for us, right? He didn't come to be a consumer, but to be a producer, a helper, a giver, a servant, the only hope for us to begin to live a life pleasing to God is for us to be reconciled to Him. Right? To get back to Him. To be with Him. And the only way to do that is to come to Him in faith. Come to Him in faith. Let's not get this backwards, right? Let's not try and transform our lives before we've gotten right with God. That's backwards. We come to Him first. And in Him and through Him we receive power to be new people and to live a holy life. He will give you a new heart. He will give you a new life. And He will help you to get yourself out of the center of your life and to begin to live for Him. Well, now let's go to Him. Let's turn to Him in prayer as we transition to the table here. Let's bow before Him in prayer and ask Him for that grace and that help that we all need this morning. Oh Lord, we know that, that all of us, Lord, have fallen short and all of us have not lived as you've called us to. God, our lives are filled with self and we consume and we, we make it about ourselves. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for being sinful stewards of what we've been given. Lord, let us be better images, better representations who fill the earth and rule over it as you rule over us as a gracious and godly and giving and serving and loving creator. Let us be like that. Lord, as we turn to the table here in a moment, I pray that we would see that That the one real absolute need we have is not to consume all of the goods and things that are advertised, advertised day after day after day in the media and all around us. The real deepest need we all have is to come and consume of the Lord Jesus, to eat at his table, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, to be one with him, to feast upon him by faith. That is the one deepest, most ultimate need we all have. So as we transition to the table now, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Grant us all we need to live this vision of life for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.